Greetings, this is Cody, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus. Uh, as part of a research project that I'm undergoing uh, for a book on recent trends, um, although I guess in a lot of ways they're not very recent at all, but a recent, uh, a recent enthusiasm, I suppose, for um, unhitching the Old Testament from the Christian faith, uh, I'm going to be talking to scholars who... Uh, kind of go toward that approach and, and, and find it valuable as well as scholars who are pushing back for, for, for one reason or another. And so uh, I'm going to be doing sort of a series of uh, recordings talking with um, those who, who have some strong opinions on this and who are knowledgeable on, on the subject. And uh, there may be some repetition here or there as I ask the same questions, but uh, I suspect that I'll be getting different answers and uh, different uh, nuances in the answers. So uh, I really appreciate you tagging along. I hope that you enjoy uh, the process. And uh, if at the end of it you'd like to get a hold of the book that I'm working on, that would be wonderful as well. Thank you. Enjoy. Greetings, my name is Cody Cook, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus. I'm speaking today with Keith Giles, who I've had on twice before. Keith is a co-host of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast and author of several books, including Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb, the most recent, Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment, and the book that brings us here today, Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. And apart from the similar titles, they also have similar cover design styles. So I imagine they look good as a set of posters in your living room, Keith. Yeah, if I had them, I don't have a poster, but I, you know, they do look nice. They do look nice together. I'm very blessed. My publisher, uh, Ralph Polindo, he he does all the covers. Mm. And um, yeah, he's done a wonderful job keeping it into a series, which is interesting because when I did the first book with him, I we weren't planning a series. You know, I just... We just did Jesus Untangled. That was the first book. And um, I guess we kind of lucked out because we found a way to keep some of the elements in that book uh, and keep it moving forward in a series. So it worked out really yeah. good. Now, was was there was it your idea to con- kind of continue with the Jesus Un thing or, or was that the publisher wanted to do that or did this kind of happen organically? That's a great question. Um, I don't remember. It probably was Ralph's the, yeah. the idea. He's really like those kind of things really matter to him. <laughs> yeah. they, they don't really matter so much to me. Um, yeah. But, um, but that's why he's the publisher. Like yeah. he really cares too about like release dates. Mm. You know, like, Oh, let's release it on July the 4th or let's release it on, you know, whatever um, Luther's birthday or something like things that like, who cares, but apparently, you know, it matters to him. So. Gotcha. Well, and, and I mean, I, I was I was kind of joking, but I, I actually think they, they would look awesome above your couch if you if you had those, you know, framed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have it. Yeah, I've got the, you know, I, I have the books sitting on a bookshelf, um, each one facing out yeah. and see them laid together. They do look pretty cool. Yeah. I think, yeah, cover art's important. I think uh, especially uh, evangelicals coming from a sort of a Protestant background, we don't really uh, appreciate images enough. <laughs> right. Well, I mean. And, that, and honestly, that's one of those things I appreciate, too, because, um, yeah, a lot of books, especially Christian books and kind of like even album covers and stuff are usually really cheesy and mm-hmm. really lame. So when you when you do get someone who knows how to do some quality stuff, it's, you know, yeah. it's rare. I'll have, to, I'll have to send you a, a book that I had, a, kind of a short book that I did recently where I had a friend do a cover design that I think looks really awesome. It's called Open Source Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's got, are you familiar with kind of the open source Linux movement a little yeah, bit? yeah. yeah. So it's got like a, it's like tux, but is like a um, like a medieval saint, 
uh, <laughs> and uh, it's kind of like, sort of looks like an oil paint sort of stuff. Anyway, it looks really awesome. So I'm a big I'm a big fan of good looking covers, and and, and uh, you definitely have them. Um, <laughs> so well, I, I kind of want to get into why I've got you here, but um, since we're chatting a little bit, I'm going to ask you an off topic question uh, sure. first which is um, we haven't talked about uh, movies in a while, uh, but I happen to know that you have great taste in films. And so I want to ask if there's anything you've watched recently that you'd recommend. You know, man, so my wife, Wendy, has been visiting her mom in Tennessee. Her mom had a stroke about two oh. weeks ago. And uh, she's good now. I mean, she's, she oh. works fine and she didn't have any major issues. But Wendy flew out there and has been uh, trying to help her, you know. Uh, so in the, So I've been alone, which means I've been watching like, sometimes two movies a day. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of movies. So I've, I'm trying to keep up with all the movies that kind of came out um, during Oscar, you know, the last year, some mm -hmm. of the nominated films. I think I've almost seen everything. I just watched Uncut Gems and I really like that. Yeah. Um, I heard a lot of good things about that, but the only Adam Sandler movie I really liked was Punch Drunk Love. Then you'll love this because oh. it's, it's really that kind of feeling. Like it's a very serious film. That's the thing about Adam Sandler is, you know, people don't understand um, this guy when he really wants to is a phenomenal dramatic actor. Yeah. I think he could be up there with De Niro or Joaquin Phoenix or something like that. I mean, well, I think he kind of already is. He just ha he just doesn't make enough of those kind of movies for people to be familiar with his ability yeah. and talent. But this movie, absolutely. In fact, I think I heard Daniel Day-Lewis called him after the, after he saw the movie and told him, that he did a fantastic job uh, mm. acting in that capacity. And I totally believe that it, it was just a phenomenal job. Parasite's really good. Um, I think that probably deserved best picture. Um, I also really enjoyed Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. And you know, I mean, and, long as, and I know you, you, you and I both care a lot more about films that have a lot more spiritual themes. And I think um, two films that I watched this past year, or, well, the last few months, um, that have very, very strong, surprisingly, one of them surprisingly strong spiritual, you know, redemptive themes. Uh, one was Waves. I don't know if you've heard about this film called Waves. Mm -hmm, I haven't. Um, Sterling K. Brown, I think that's his name is, and he's the guy from This Is Us. Mm. Uh, he's in it. Oh, my gosh, what a beautiful, powerful film about forgiveness about redemption, about how even when you've done the worst thing in the world, how every, everyone deserves mercy and grace. Uh, oh my gosh, it's just beautiful. It's really powerful. Um, and then the movie Harriet, which is the true story about oh, Harriet. Yeah. Also phenomenal film. I like that too. I, I, the only thing I didn't like, it, I, it took me out of it a little bit where at the very end where she kind of has her... Uh, supposed, you know, prophecy about the Civil War, and it got a. I, I felt like it took took me out of it just a little bit. Um, yeah, but apparently but, she really did have those kinds of visions and stuff. I think she does. Yeah, I think she had. Yes, yeah, she did have visions. That's true. Um, one I watched that came out, I think, last year. Um, is it the, the Scholar and the Madman or the Professor and the Madman? It's Mel Gibson and um, uh, Sean Penn. Oh wow. And it's actually based on a true story about the uh, creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. Oh my gosh, and, no, I, don't, I didn't see that at all. And to talk about a movie about redemption, and you know, I'm sure that's a theme that's near and dear to Mel Gibson's heart right now. Um, oh, 
but I mean, a, a, a really well-made movie, and definitely the, the theme of redemption is there. And but anyway, so we spent a lot of time talking about movies, and I want I want to get uh, to what we've got uh, kind of set up to discuss here, which is. So I, I'm writing a book right now about recent trends in unhitching the Christian faith from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And I interact with uh, a, a couple other authors as well, uh, Greg Boyd and uh, Andy Stanley. But I also interact with you and your book, Jesus Unbound. And so this interview is not an opportunity for me to, to lay out my critiques. It's really an opportunity for me to ask questions, make sure I understand your position better. Because if I, if I don't, then I, I really shouldn't be critiquing it anyway. So, so mm-hmm. to start with, uh, could you give me a brief overview of, of what, you're, what you were doing in Un- Jesus Unbound and, and the case you were making? Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, the book Jesus Unbound kind of came out of um, the second chapter of Jesus Untangled, which was all about faith and politics. Um, and I, I, took a, I took a kind of a, a, a moment at the beginning of that book, and I think it's the second chapter, and I just said, I, I tried to explain to the reader, hey, um, I'm going to be doing some things throughout this book and, and um, about why I understand my thinking and why I arrive at certain conclusions. And it's because of the way I approach scripture, which may be different from the way you as the reader might approach scripture. And, and so then I just, so anyway, the whole chapter was basically saying, you know, I look at scripture not as a flat Bible, which is, but I used to, I mean, I kind of grew up with a flat Bible perspective. Um, but but over, you know, recently I've made a shift to sort of read scripture through the lens of Christ, which is what the, uh, the Anabaptists did um, most famously. Uh, and I believe actually, <laughs> to be honest, we'll get into this. I kind of think Jesus and Paul and the early church fathers did as well. Um, but at any rate, um, if, if you take a Jesus-centered perspective of scripture, then you will read certain passages very differently. And, and that's, again, so uh, I, I did that, but I only covered in one chapter of Jesus Untangled. And, but the book wasn't about that. The book was about politics, nationalism, and, and all that. But um, a lot of the feedback I got from people were like, man, I loved your book, but dude, that whole thing about the flat Bible and the Jesus-centered Bible, like, tell me more about that. I, I've never heard that before. That, was, that blew my mind. So that made me, um, that and other things made me feel like, I should probably make an entire book that just focuses on this Jesus centric way of looking at scripture. So that's primarily what I'm doing in this book. Um, But of course, in the process of doing that, well, the subtitle of the book is liberating the word of God from the Bible. So that's one of the other things I'm doing is to say that, um, that the word of God is Christ. Um, The word of God and, and I think this is even con- mostly consistent throughout the New Testament, especially anytime the phrase word of God is used, it's referring either to Christ or to the spoken message of the gospel itself, which was the message of Christ. So, um, and, and not, not a book, not, not something bound in written down kind of a thing. Um, and I think that's important because I think we have a, a problem in America today where there's a lot of biblicism even to the point of people flat out saying they do worship the Bible and they do think that um, having a relationship with the Bible is equal to having a relationship with God um, and all that kind of stuff. Like my, let me say this and then I'll stop and cause I'm, I can just keep going. So uh, let me just say this last part. Um, I feel like um, that 
what I'd like to correct in the book, Jesus Unbound, is it's a slight, it's a subtle shift, right? But it's the difference between recognizing the difference between the fact that the Bible isn't the treasure. The Bible is a map that points us to a treasure. The Bible isn't the meal. It's the menu that's telling us about an experience we can have that we should taste and see that the Lord is good. So the scripture doesn't ever point us back to the scripture. The scriptures are pointing us to Christ. And that's the danger is that if we, if we just have a relationship with the book, then we've turned the, we've turned the, the map into the treasure. And, and if, when you do that, you don't get the treasure. You just get a map. Um, and you substitute it, right? You, you settle for less than what you're, you're intended to. And, and what is that? The, the final, that final thing that it's pointing to is a connection and a relationship with a living Christ. So that's kind of what I was attempting to do with the book. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think before you'd written the book, uh, I'd seen you say something about, uh, you know, online somewhere, um, this people who, who, who worship the Bible. And I remember thinking like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. And then uh, we interacted a little bit on that. And then I did see a couple comments on, on one of your posts where people were saying that. And I thought, huh, okay, well, how about that? Um, <laughs> I know. I look, 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 at least you and I can agree on that part, right? Yeah. There are people who think that. Yeah. Who, who does that? And, 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 and honestly, like sometimes people will, will say like what you're saying, like, come on, Keith, you're setting up straw, man. No one thinks that way. No one believes that way. And then, well, actually, um, I could introduce you to some people that actually do. Like, yeah. I'm not arguing against people that aren't real. These are real people. These are people that have actual, and many of them are pastors, and they have churches, and there are people that, that listen to them and believe that, you no, know, Pastor Bob, he says this, and they're going to just follow along behind him. So, yeah, even though you and I can agree, that's a pretty extreme Um we we do have those kinds of things going on. I mean, those those kind of positions are out there. Yeah, and and I, and so you know, one thing I I would like to draw out is, is that you you, you kind of highlight some of the comments that have been made, and and um, that's a problem <laughs> within the church <laughs> that people think that way. I I remember hearing a uh, a Christian apologist who dealt with Islam a lot, and um, he'd said that you know Christians sometimes think that. Uh, the Quran is is the, is on par with the Bible and, and the Muslim mind. You know, it's it's like their Bible, and they said that's actually not true. Um, the Quran is more like Jesus, and the Hadith is more like the Bible, <laughs> because for for the Muslim, the the, the Quran is pre-existent. It's as close to God as you can be without being God. Whereas you know the Hadith, all these this these sort of um, stories about Muhammad that help the Muslim to understand uh, the Quran and, and that kind of stuff that sort of testifies to the the Quran and that event of the giving of it. Um, that, that That's sort of secondary. And one thing I, I certainly I mean, have to agree with you on is, you know, Jesus is God. The Bible is not God. I think we can, we can debate about the, the role the Bible should have or what we, how we understand inspiration or, or infallibility or whether that's a helpful doctrine. But, but at the very least we, we, we stand on this, the same, common ground, which is the Bible is not God. Jesus is God. Right. Um, but maybe to, come, to, to move on to that, though, um, 
you don't just you don't just say that in the book. Um, you, you seem to um, see Jesus as contradicting the Old Testament at times, whereas I might see those contradictions as um, the difference um, differences resulting in a change of covenants. You know, God initiates the old covenant, then he initiates the new covenant. They're different covenants with different conditions, and thus the differences. Whereas it seems that you see those contradictions as maybe the Old Testament prophets getting it wrong. So I, I, I'd be curious to hear why, why you think that the, the evidence leans more toward them getting it wrong as opposed to we're just talking, we're just in a different covenant now. So that's, that's the difference. Right. Yeah. And so now this is now, now, you, now you and I are moving into more of the place where, where you and I, where the path will diverge. <laughs> uh, and we have had a conversation that's similar to this uh, a while back. Um, but yeah, so you're right. I do, um, I do see that, um, as you said, I do think Jesus is correcting, um, that Jesus very boldly corrects Moses on many occasions. I think several times during the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Um, and, um, and even just throughout his ministry. And we can, we can get into some of those specifics if you want. But, but I think sort of the Jesus-centric um, perspective also comes from like, my, my belief um, that part of what Jesus was doing, he was fulfilling the law and the prophets. That's what he says he came to do, not, not to abolish them, right? So I don't think I've come to abolish them. Um, I've come to fulfill them. And then he says, you know, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And so he, I would say, okay, so that there's two until statements. And um, so he says, I came to fulfill it. And until I do, it won't disappear. Well, guess what? He fulfilled it. I would say he, he did what he came to do. He accomplished it. That's part of what he's saying, you know, from the cross, it is accomplished. It is finished. He did accomplish it. He, he says in John to the father, I have accomplished everything you called me to do. Um, so he did accomplish it, and therefore the Old Covenant scriptures are, uh, as the author of Hebrews says, obsolete. As Paul says on numerous occasions, uh, it's fading, it's passing, um, it's, the, uh, it's, the, it's the wife that you should put away, uh, it's the thing that's vanishing and fading, and, and all those things. So, um, so I see, yes, I, I see that Jesus does... Um, contradict some of the things that I feel like Moses has said. Uh, and why do I think that? Well, I think that also, not because I just read flat out um, like contradictions where Jesus says, Moses says this, but I say something different uh, on several occasions, but um, also because uh, Paul says this. Paul says that um, to this day, whenever anyone reads the Old Covenant scriptures, they're, um, there's a veil that covers their eyes. They cannot, they, they're, they're blind. They can't see it. They don't get it. But only through Christ is the veil removed. Um, and so the way I understand that is that, um, and I think this is a big, big part of what the Gospel of John is wanting to say, the case that the, the Gospel of John wants to make, is that as it says in the very first chapter, no man has ever seen God at any time. No one, not Moses, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not David, none of those guys. No one has ever seen God at any time, except 
for the son. And the son came to reveal the father to us. Why, why did he have to do that? Because no one had accurately revealed the father to us until Jesus did that. So those other, those other testimonies we have in the old covenant scriptures from these people who were not the son of God, uh, who, who were not those who had ever actually seen God. Um, some, I'm not saying they always got it wrong, but often got it wrong. Like, again, they were seeing it also through a veil. They were not clearly, uh, they were doing their best to communicate their experience of God, but they didn't have a, as clear a picture of who God was and what God was like as Jesus did. Jesus comes, he shows us once and for all, finally, this is who the Father actually is. And a lot of what he, lot of what he reveals to us does contradict uh, a lot of what is revealed in the Old Covenant Scriptures. This is why, you know, his disciples, James and John, can say, oh, I remember in the Old Covenant Scriptures when Elijah called down fire from heaven against the enemies of God. Hey, Jesus, can we do what, what Elijah did? And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Well, not only did James and John not know what spirit they're of, I'd say neither did Elijah. Like these are, in other words, this is not the spirit of God. This is not who God is. And Jesus, I believe, is coming to clarify for us what the Father actually looks like. That, that the Father looks like Jesus. Right? Even in Matthew, it says, Jesus says in Matthew, um, no one knows the Father except for the Son. No one. And to whomever the Son chooses to reveal the Father. I mean, if that isn't the case, then I just read Moses. I'll just read the Old Testament. I'll know exactly who God is. I don't need Jesus. Jesus says, no, you need me. You need me to reveal to you who the Father is. Because without me, you won't clearly see who the Father is. But if you've seen me, now you've seen the Father. And that's who the Father is and what the Father looks like. And I see differences between those two testimonies of Jesus and of the way God is portrayed often. Not always, but often in the Old Covenant scriptures. So that's kind of how I, how I land there. That, and that, but believe it or not, that's the short answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, I want to ask a few clarifying questions just on that. Um, sure. So one is you, you, you agree that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Well, maybe, maybe I'll line them up quickly, and then you can sure. just address them however you want to. Sure. Uh, one is um, for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament doesn't, it have to have first been given by God. So the, the, to say that Jesus is fulfilling it, that implies that there's some plan and purpose that it's created for that's uh, ultra mundane, that's, that's above the human will. Um, you talked about the Old Testament being abolished and fading away, but unless I'm misremembering, it seems like those passages, we're not talking about the Old Testament, but the Old Covenant, and isn't there a distinction between the two? Also, is John saying that Moses didn't see God? or that Moses saw Jesus. Because if, if you go back to Exodus, we read that Moses saw God face to face, which could be, you know, I think maybe you would say, well, okay, well, that was not true then because John contradicts that and says otherwise. But it seems to me that John could either be saying that no one really got a clear picture of God until the incarnation, or he could be saying that any time that God has been revealed in the past, that was Jesus. So John is either tying Jesus to the old covenant or he's trying to untie Jesus from the old covenant, depending on how you look at it. And, and is, is it necessarily clear that what he's doing is untying? I, I'm not saying that the entire Old Testament 
we should just t toss that out. Um, absolutely not. I mean, there are phenomenal, there are, I do think there are legitimate, you know, prophetic uh, pictures given to us in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, through the writings of David and the psalmists, where, where we have phenomenal, you know, um, prophetic pictures of, of Christ. And you, you and I know what those are. And we go and read them and our mouths fall open. And we go, oh my gosh, there he is. There's, there's Christ. Um, and so when we see those things, well then, yes. I mean, it's obvious when I read Isaiah and I read certain passages of Isaiah and I go, not only do I see Jesus there, the reason I see Jesus there is because Jesus fulfilled it. Like, oh yeah, he was the one who suffered. He was this he, he's the one who went through these things. I read Psalms 22. Did Jesus fulfill Psalms 22? Absolutely. But how do I know? Because it's the same story. I mean, I, I see these events happening. So um, absolutely, Jesus fulfilled uh, the messianic prophecies that were spoken of in the Old Covenant scriptures about him. So those are the things that he fulfilled. Obviously, not um, everything in the Old Testament scriptures are are things that need to be fulfilled, right? Like, um, you know, you could Balaam's ass doesn't need to be fulfilled by Jesus, you know, in his so, so it's in the Old Testament, yeah. but is it something that needs to be fulfilled? Well, no. I want to ask just one one little kind of tiny pushback as, as a question to clarify on that, which is doesn't Jesus there use the language of every jot and tittle? So if if Jesus is saying, Well, parts of parts of the Old Testament were given by God and I'm fulfilling those parts then where is this language of every jot and tittle and, um, you know, not, 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 a, not a piece of that will fall away until I fulfilled it. Right. Um, well, that, no, that's, that's a good, good, good question. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure how I would say specifically the jot or the tittle, but I, I do feel like in the, in that entire passage, um, what, what is being said is that Jesus is going to, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? So, um, I mean, in the one hand, again, he fulfills it in the sense of there are messianic prophecies about him. He, I'd say he fulfills every one of them. Um, there are, uh, and then he himself says that if anyone loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves their neighbor as their self, they have fulfilled the law. So in that sense, Jesus fulfills it because Jesus perfectly fulfills that, right? He, he perfectly loves the Father and he perfectly loves us and even loves his enemies to go even farther than that. Um, and so I would say those are the ways that Jesus has fulfilled um, the law and the prophets and the things that are, that are prophesied about him. Gotcha. Okay. So, that's, so that was the first question. Um, we can deal with these or if you, if you, we can move on basically however you want to. No, no, I, I want to cover, I know you mm. asked a great question and, um, and you know, I'm pretty sure I covered this in the book and um, I should have prepared myself a little more ahead of time. And I was it the question about uh, uh, John and Moses or the, the one about the, um, whether it's the OT old Testament or the, the old, old covenant. Testament or the old covenant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for example, there's a place in second Corinthians starting at chapter three, where Paul does the, he does this sort of compare and contrast, right? Between the old covenant and the new covenant, right? So he basically tells us that the old covenant brings death. 
the glory of the covenant, the old covenant is fading. Uh, it brings condemnation. It was glorious in the past tense, but it now has no glory and it's fading away. And in contrast, he says the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant. It brings righteousness, whereas the old one brought condemnation. Uh, the new covenant uh, has a glory that is surpassing, meaning it's everlasting, and it continues. So he does that in 2 Corinthians, and he also does it again in Galatians chapter 4. Um, and in that case, he compares the old covenant and the new covenant to the two wives of Abraham, Hagar and Sarah. And he says that one of them, one of the wives is from Mount Sinai, and she bears children who are slaves, and that's Hagar. And that um, the other wife stands for the, um, the new covenant, whose children are free. Uh, the, the stands for Jerusalem and her children are, are free and she is our mother. So, um, and then he says, and then after he says that, he says this, get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. So again, in this metaphor, who's the slave woman? The old covenant. So what does he say to do with it? Get rid of it. Um, because the sons of that covenant, that slave woman, will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's sons. And what's that? That's the new covenant. So he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the, of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Um, and then he does the same kind of back and forth contrast where he says uh, the old covenant uh, is from Mount Sinai. That's where the Ten Commandments were from. So that's not a, <laughs> that, that's not a coincidence that he chooses Mount Sinai is where the old covenant is from. Um, that it bears children who are slaves. It corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem, uh, that they are in, that uh, it's in slavery with her, along with her children, that the old covenant should be cast out of our presence, and that it will not share in the inheritance of Christ, and it's not our mother. And, and then he contrasts that with the new covenant, saying the new covenant bears children who are free. Uh, it's of the heavenly new Jerusalem, which is the spiritual Jerusalem. This is where you know, the, the church comes down from God out of heaven and all of that. It's not a physical city, it's spiritual. But that's our true mother. And those who are in the, of the new covenant share in the inheritances of Christ. Um, and then there's many other places like in Romans 6, Paul says we're not under the law. In Romans 7, we're dead to the law. Romans 7, 7, 4, he says we're dead to the law. 7, 6, he says we're delivered from the law. Um, and then we're not under those the law or the old covenant uh, we're under this new law of christ so does that answer your question or uh, maybe it, it seems like you're saying that the old testament and the old covenant are conceptually linked um my question was is it really the old testament that's been abolished or is it actually the old covenant because i think there's a distinction but beyond that i think even if you um, so I guess it's, my, my, my question has maybe different components because my position is that, yeah, the new covenant is absolutely superior. No question about it. The, the, the old covenant was built with, with, you know, with problems in there. And, and I think built intentionally uh, because, you know, you have a, a temple and a priesthood uh, that, that are, are far inferior to having Jesus as the high priest who lives inside us as his temple. Right. And um, the Hebrews, and this is, this is yes. one of the major points Hebrews is trying to make, right? Absolutely. So, so you're not going to get an argument from me that the new covenant is superior to the old. I would distinguish between the old Testament and the old covenant. So I would say the old Testament is inspired by God and given by God and trustworthy 
but it testifies to a covenant that no longer exists. So that's the distinction that I would make. So yes, the old covenant is abolished, but that doesn't mean the Old Testament. Well, you're not saying the Old Testament, you know, is of no avail or anything like that. I, I, I mean, I don't think you would want to take that abolishing or fading away language too far because you yourself see value in it. Yeah. Um, but what I, what, I, what I would say is I don't think that the Old Testament, I don't think there's anything there that suggests the Old Testament was uninspired or can't be useful for Christians today. What, what, what is abolished is the Old Covenant. Yeah, and, and when we say Old Covenant, we mean, um, I mean, the, the, the smallest element of that is the, the Ten Commandments. Yeah, there's an example, but, 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 but yeah. Because Paul specifically talks about these, this law that was, that was delivered on table, hand, you know, tablets of stone or stone tablets. Like, again, that, that's a very specific reference to the, the Ten Commandments. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, sort of wanted to, to say, well, what's the distinction between the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, sort of this sort of binding legal um, framework that we see within the Old Covenant Scripture? And the the entire old covenant scriptures themselves, right? Is that kind of your distinction? Yeah. So I mean, yeah. So for example, if you pick up Exodus twenty and read, uh, "You shall not murder," I don't think you're going to go. Well, that's a bunch of hogwash. Okay. <laughs> you know. So, but 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 what you would say is this is part of a covenant framework, and the covenant itself has been abolished. That doesn't mean that everything within the covenant was hogwash it did, or right. anything like that. It just meant it just means that that is no longer in, in effect. Right. Like the, 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 the entirety of it. Right. And so, yeah, so, so what I do as I'm attempting to read Old Covenant scriptures through the lens of Christ, which again, I, I think Paul tells us that's what we should do. I think that's what the Mount of Transfiguration is actually uh, uh, an illustration for us of what we should do. Um, what I'm doing is, again, we, we start with Christ. We begin with him. So we, we don't just study the historical person of Jesus. We're not, it's not like you know, I'm doing a book report on Abraham Lincoln or something. Um, it, it's that there is a living Christ who is resurrected, who is alive, who I, who is a good shepherd. I can know him, hear his voice, have a connection with him. I can abide in him. He will abide in me. And I can have an ongoing constant connection with Christ. So it's, uh, it, it starts with that abiding first. Um, and then when I go and read the old covenant scriptures, if I read something like in Exodus, you know, thou shalt not kill. I say, amen. Uh, Jesus would say that. Uh, that's who Jesus, that, that affirms the, the picture of God I see in Christ. But if I keep on reading in Exodus or Deuteronomy or something, and I see, uh, and thus saith the Lord, take your sword and go next door to your neighbors and rip open the pregnant bellies of the, of the women, and don't you dare show any mercy. I want you to kill toddlers, and I want you to kill animals, and I want you to kill old people and young people, and just slaughter every human being, and go back in the backyard and kill all the cattle and the cats and the chickens and the dogs and the pigs, and I want you to slaughter every living thing. I say no. I don't think that's Jesus. I don't see Jesus commanding people, his people, to go and killed children. Uh, so, and that may be where you and I disagree. But when I see those old pa old covenant passages that say God said to go and do this thing, 
or that this pleases God, or this is what God wants, I read those and I say, okay, this is an example of someone who didn't see God. This is an example of someone who um, thought they knew what God wanted. Maybe this is what they believed this was the best and that God blessed it. Well, we went into battle and we won, so God must have been in favor of it, right? Because if God wasn't in favor, we would have lost. And again, that's that's this sort of sort of an ancient primitive way of thinking of God that I believe people had before um, before Christ and frankly before the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh at Pentecost. I had a question about how we should read passages in the Old Testament that, that speak of God's violence or God's wrath, but it seems like you've kind of answered that. Do you think the New Testament lacks passages like that? Um. Uh, well, uh, on par with that, yes, I don't think I see any New Testament passages that specifically say God says go and murder a bunch of children or pregnant women. Um, now, that doesn't mean there aren't examples in the New Testament, um, and we can talk about some of those, that um, that either suggest violence or appear to say that, well, God was okay with this. But uh, I think even those are passages that we might still need to read through the lens of Christ. Gotcha. So th- there may be passages in, in both the Old and New Testament that, that don't quite live up to uh, God as you see him revealed in Christ. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously much fewer in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. But again, I think where... Um, like I used to read the book of Acts... And I used to feel like, well, everything that happens after Pentecost is an example of the disciples flawlessly and faithfully following um, the Spirit of God. But but now that I go back, now I go back and read it, and as I'm reading through uh, the book of Acts, I go, oh, I think what I'm noticing are places that they screwed up. And And then what I see happening is what happens next is God reminding them or correcting them and saying, oh, actually, remember? Remember what, I, remember what Jesus was with you? He told you this and you, you got it wrong. Now let me show you how you got it wrong. So I think I see examples of those kinds of things happening where, um, where again, the, the, the apostles and the, and the disciples of Jesus are people like us. They're not infallible. Paul's not infallible. Um, Peter's not infallible. James and John aren't infallible. Um, they can get it wrong, just the same way the Old Covenant uh, authors may have gotten it wrong at times. Um, but Jesus is our is our uh, standard. So, well, so you, you've kind of hinted at this distinction that you make um, more apparent in Jesus Unbound, um, this sort of contrast between following Scripture with following the Spirit. Can, can you tease out that distinction a little bit for me? Yes. Yeah, and I do develop that in the book. Um, the idea that, well, I think we have, um, I think we use language like nowadays, we'll say things like, well, because now we have, now we're on the other side of a, of a canon of scripture that has been, you know, edited, compiled, and closed. And we call that the Bible, right? And so now on this side, on that side of history, on that side of the event, we'll say things like the spirit of God will never contradict anything that's written. Um, well, 
I would say actually not only do I disagree with that, I think scripture disagrees with that. I think I, and I talk about, I give examples in Jesus Unbound in the book. Um, I think, I think the, the example of scripture in the New Testament is quite often the spirit will contradict what's written. Um, and so, and I think that shouldn't surprise us because, because again, God didn't write the Bible. We did. And if we keep this in mind, people wrote the Bible. God didn't write the Bible. Um, it doesn't mean God didn't inspire it. It doesn't mean uh, God didn't prophesy something. It doesn't mean God, um, you know, had nothing, had, had no involvement at all with, with, the, with the scriptures. But it does, we do need to keep in mind that we wrote it. And if we wrote it, then yes, sometimes there are, there are going to be things where the spirit will come later down the line and correct something. And, and you see this in the Old Testament, right? I, I mean, I, I point this about in, in the scripture about how, I'm sorry, in, in, um, about how in the scriptures, you know, we have commands from Moses about God wants you to offer sacrifices. This is the way you should offer sacrifices. If you don't offer sacrifices this way, you're in trouble. Um, but then Hosea comes around later and says, actually, you know, I don't think God wanted that. And then, you know, Isaiah says, yeah, I, God never commanded that. God never wanted this. This, this is not something he asked you to do. Uh, Paul's, and that's why David says, um, you know, uh, sacrifice of bulls and goats, these things don't please you. Don't, you know, these things don't matter to you. So I, even in the Old Testament scriptures, there's a debate. Like, and I think that's something that we've missed even in um, the, the way the, way, uh, the Jewish people, the way Hebrews look at their own scriptures, like they don't look at their scriptures and say, this is one singular voice um, of absolute agreement on everything to do with God and who God is and what God is like. No, what we have is a collection of various people who have different experiences and various concepts and ideas. And we value each of these voices. We, you know, we're all, in other words, there's like 10 of us sitting around a table and we're having a good time. And hey, Job, tell us, tell us your experience of God. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, Isaiah, tell us your experience of God. Oh, thank you, man. That's that's thank you. That was awesome. You know, hey, Jeremiah, tell us your experience of God. So, but the point isn't to say um, who's right, who's wrong, you know, who's full of it. Get out of here. Um, no, we enjoy having the conversation and recognizing that there there isn't one you know singular voice and idea about. Uh, every little thing. And I think, again, we see this in the New Testament as well. So, uh, but, I, but I would say that Jesus is coming and clarifying for us a lot of misunderstandings that we had um, about God, specifically about who God is and what God is like. So the Spirit can kind of come later and uh, help us clarify things. And I think in the book, you, you, you seem to be arguing that um, in some cases, we, we'd be better off with the spirit than, than we would this. Well, actually, you would, I think you do seem to argue we'd be better off with just the spirit than, you know, than scripture. Hold on. Okay. So I'm going to let you finish. I'm going to let you finish. But, I yeah. mean, dude, I read the Bible every day. I, I love the Bible. I mean, I value it. So I would never tell anybody... You don't need it. Don't bother. Oh, no. And, 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 and I, 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 I don't want to misrepresent you. Yeah, no, no. But I'm just saying I would prioritize. I would say mm -hmm. it starts with Christ. 
the person first, the, the connection with Jesus first, and then maybe the Gospels, because these are the things Jesus said and taught and did, and I believe that we, and I make a good case for this, we have very, very strong reasons to, to believe uh, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, are uh, written by people who lived during the first century that, that knew Jesus, that, that, you know, that are accurately communicating the things that Jesus said and taught. So uh, then the, the gospels first, um, then maybe the writings of Paul, the sort of the witnesses to Christ, and then under that, the, the old covenant scriptures, which again are foreshadowing, foretelling the coming of Christ. So I kind of would put it in sort of like a pyramid, maybe. Um, I wouldn't say you only need the spirit, you don't forget the rest of the thing. And like, I, I value scripture, I wouldn't say. Gospel. Yeah, and I, I, I want to clarify that I wasn't saying that you were saying that we didn't need scripture at all or it didn't have any value. I, I, I don't remember exactly what you say in the book, but at one point as you're kind of discussing the ways that uh, Christians trying to build a theology on a flat Bible kind of approach to scripture, as you call it, um, that maybe in some cases we would have been better off if those people just didn't even have a Bible. <laughs> um, and, and, and I know that maybe that's, maybe that's being a little bit coy, but um, ultimately you're saying the spirit will lead us into um, into truth, truth. In all, yeah, and, and and that and that sometimes that will involve contradicting the Bible in such a way. Not that you know, okay, well, that's an old covenant. This is a new covenant, so that's a change. But that maybe this thing here in Exodus or Isaiah or you know maybe even Romans was never really true to begin with. That maybe that that was something they, they had missed God in some way there, and so the Spirit will help us to see God where that person missed it. Is that fair? Um, well, I, one thing I do say in the book, uh, is that I understand people who get, who are nervous when I suggest this idea that, um, that we should lean more on the, you know, our connection with Jesus and the voice of the good shepherd and being led by the spirit than we are on the scripture. And, and usually it's because the people, people that disagree with that statement are nervous about that statement. Uh, and I understand that. You know, they're, what they're saying is that then they're thinking is, no, 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 Keith, look, we've got this Bible. We've got this scripture. Let's just follow this because if we follow this, we won't get it wrong. Really? Because we have thousands of denominations all using the same book, all reading the same scriptures, all believing we're getting it right. Well, some of us must not be because we're all over the place. So it's not as if, you know, Keith, you're 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 going to take us off in some other tra crazy direction. I mean, if if we just followed the Holy Spirit, we would, I don't know, we'd end up with a whole bunch of different ideas. Yeah, like we already are. That's what we're doing already with the Bible. Um, so I I my argument is whether I'm right or not. My argument is I honestly believe that if we are actually connected to God through the Holy Spirit, if we are abiding in Christ, we are doing our best to. And it's not like it's only a one way street. The Holy Spirit wants to communicate us. He wants to be found. He wants to tell us. Well, he wants to lead us into all truth. Um, I, th I think we have a better chance of getting it right. Not that we're never going to get it wrong. Again, we're human beings. We have an infinite capacity of getting it wrong. Plenty of people are going to think they're listening to the Spirit, and they're going to they're get it wrong. I, I concede. But I think that we have a better chance of getting it right if we're being led by the Holy Spirit than if we're just reading a book of what God, these are the things God did and said 2000 years ago or more. 
you know, and again, that's just my, that's my, my perspective. Sure. Well, and, and I, 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 I don't want to give too much away of my own position, but I, I kind of like the idea of, of having a read, reading scripture with the spirit. Exactly the same thing. In fact, that, that's what I mean when I say I'm reading scripture through the lens of Christ. If I, if I am abiding in Christ and then I'm reading those scriptures, I feel like the spirit is going to say, you know, there's th- things I'm going to read that I'm going to see I would have never seen before. That happens to me all the time. Oh, my gosh. Whoa, that's awesome. Wow, God, thank you. But I think, unfortunately, there's other things that I read sometimes and I, I go, wow, I think that guy who wrote that, I don't think he really clearly saw who God was, you know, that he, that he, that he was seen through the veil. Well, so I feel like this this question could create a much bigger answer than maybe we, we want to get into right now because we sort of start to get into historical Jesus type stuff and some of these argument, arguments. But as you were talking about that, it seemed to me that if, you know, we agree that if we're just trying to listen to the spirit, we could still misunderstand. And even the apostles seems, seem to maybe have, uh, in your view, gotten it wrong, um, not just generally but 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 specifically in the recording of scripture um does that put us in a by the way you and i should clarify what that means at some point (laughs) okay (laughs) finish your question well maybe in your answer you you can help me clarify that yeah um so i guess my question is you know it seems that we're in a position where not only could 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 we be uh likely to to get jesus wrong if we're relying on our own biases and what we'd like the spirit to be telling us but we may be in a position too where the the record that we're reading of Jesus maybe is also off, um, assuming that we don't have a you know a fairly high view of inspiration. And so, can does a Jesus centric approach make sense if we have if we can have some some doubts about what Jesus said and taught? Does that make does that make sense? Well, no, exactly. And that, that's why I, I try to, you know, I have a whole chapter in the, in the book about are the Gospels reliable? Um, because I think that's a valid question. Because if, um, you know, I, I am critical about a few other New Testament writings. Like I, I do feel that um, I agree with many New Testament scholars that uh, several of Paul's uh, letters that have his name attributed to them, uh, that Paul, the apostle, didn't write those letters. Now that doesn't mean I I toss them out, just because um, Paul I don't think Paul actually wrote them. That's a that's another conversation. Um, I don't think the disciple Peter the fisherman wrote First and Second Peter. I again, and that's not just my opinion. I I, I believe that because I've seen scholarship on that, and I I, I think it's uh, valid. So um, I do think that in our collection of what we call New Testament writings there are some writings that we need to look at a little closer and question a little bit, um, a little bit more to say either what is it saying and who wrote it and when and why, and is there an agenda behind some of this? Um, Sometimes I think there's an agenda behind our English translations. Um, And I I talk about this in the book as well. There's several places, uh, there's several uh, passages of scripture that, are very conveniently, I would say, on purpose, mistranslated uh, in ways that either uh, support a patriarchal system and down, downgrade the, uh, the original picture of women as being 
deacons and elders and uh, those kinds of things, or um, or even homosexuality. That's another issue that I talk about in the book as well, right? that there are, so again, those things are curious to me. And I think the average Christian isn't aware of the fact that the Bible that they're holding, their English translation, um, they can't always just take everything at face value. There are some passages and even some, some maybe some entire books that you might need to look at with a little bit more scrutiny. But as far as the Gospels go, I feel, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you're going to just say the words of Jesus, um, I feel pretty confident. And, and as I've said before, um, if Jesus of Nazareth didn't say what's written in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to follow the guy who did, because that guy was awesome. Um, you know, if it wasn't Jesus, who was it? Because that, that's a pretty amazing statement. The Sermon on the Mount is, a, is an amazing uh, document an amazing, you know, truth and insight about God and about human nature and about what ultimately are the problems we have as human beings and ultimately what are the solutions for those problems. So when it comes to the Gospels, I have, I feel like we can have a whole lot of confidence. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to ask you another um I guess epistemological or maybe hermeneutical question, which is, it seems to me as I read Jesus Unbound, um, that you're not simply placing the words of Jesus over the Old Testament, but you're also maybe placing some of Jesus's words over other things that he said. So my question would be, do you have a controlling hermeneutic that helps you filter even the words of Jesus, or am I just mistaken and Jesus really is your controlling hermeneutic? Unless I have a huge blind spot, I mean, do you have some specific places where you feel like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm sort of selectively choosing some of Jesus' words and not others? Well, so a, a couple examples that come to mind would be um, some of the judge, uh, the judgment and wrath sayings of Jesus. Um, do you are, like are, or something like that? Um, you know, um, for example, the, the quotation of Isaiah, the, where, the, where the, the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. Yeah. Um, also the, um, uh, you know, Matthew 25, uh, the, the sheep and the goats, and, and some of the judgment, strong judgment passages even within um, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and also, it seems to me that you maybe kind of lean on the statements where Jesus might tweak or contradict the Old Testament more heavily than those passages where he seems to really lift it up very highly. Um, and so... There's always going to be an issue, I think, and this is, I think, part of the reason why we have so many of these denominations is that uh, people are going to see something that they really like <laughs> or that, that really, you know, intrigues them, and they're going to make that uh, a centering principle. And yeah. it, it seems to me that even if you're really trying to make Jesus a center, you're certainly capable of maybe um, emphasizing certain things he said more than other things that he said. Right. right. That, that, that's always a danger, at least. Um but but I wonder if, in, in you sort of setting Jesus on one side, um, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, you know, peacemaking, you know, love your enemies, Jesus, versus the, the God of the Old Testament who says wipe out the Canaanites, that maybe you're, you're creating a stronger contrast than the words of Jesus themselves would suggest. Yep. So let me, dude, I got to say, you ask amazing questions. I really like that. 
So, so the book that I just came out with, Jesus Undefeated, um, I deal specifically with all of those uh, passages that, um, like Matthew 25, Matthew 24, uh, the, the wrath of God passages, the, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, and um, weeping and gnashing of teeth and all those, all that kind of language, okay? Um, because the book is about the doctrine of hell, right? And so um, and my next book, by the way, in the Jesus Un series will be about the end times. And by the way, um, because we misunderstand what Jesus is saying uh, when he uses that kind of language, that, that kind of language is called apocalyptic hyperbole, okay? Um, just so you know, Jesus did not invent the phrase where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched or there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth or, or there will be destruction such as the world has never seen you know, since the beginning of time or ever see again and all that kind of language. All of those phrases are direct quotes from Old Testament uh, prophets. When Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or any of these people are prophesying in the Old Testament against Edom or Babylon or Egypt or even Jerusalem, they will prophesy using the exact same language. They're not talking about where anyone goes after they die. It's not some spiritual place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched because that's not what Isaiah meant or Jeremiah meant when they used the exact same phrases to prophesy destruction of Edom or Egypt or Jerusalem or whatever. So well, 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 I was going to say, you're singing my song there because I, I, I think the last time we talked, and maybe this is still the same or you've gone more that direction, but I think the last time we talked, you were a hopeful universalist. But oh, yeah. I... I, I, I've been I've been consistently oh, and, and, yeah yeah I I've I've been an annihilationist for a long time so I, I yeah I, I would look at those same Old Testament apocalyptic passages and say yeah you know we're, we're not talking about eternal conscious torment here but there's still an attribution of judgment on the behalf of God okay so we're good we're on the same page there so let me just say what I think is going on there um. To just to summarize it quickly, I think what Jesus is, is doing, I think a big part of his ministry is to, that he's sent to his own people. He's the final prophet. He's the last, the last prophet sent to his people at the end of the age, which is what Daniel calls the end of the, the age, the end of the Jewish age. And they are given one last opportunity. And what Jesus is saying in summary is to his people, hey, you are going in a certain direction and you've been going the same direction your entire existence or since the beginning. Um, and you need to stop, metanoia, repent, think different, turn around and go another direction. So instead of continually seeking a Messiah who's going to grab a sword and say, follow me and let's go and kick some Roman ass. What I want you to do is follow the, I'm the real Messiah. And what I'm telling you to do is to love your enemy, to bless those who curse you, to turn the other cheek. And I'm telling you, if you follow me in this, this direction, a very, very different direction, you will live. But if you don't, and you want to continue to go in the direction you're already going, and you're determined to go in, I'm going to tell you, the end of that is destruction. You are going to be completely and utterly wiped out. And this is why he uses language borrowed from Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, all those guys, and when he does, they get it. They know, oh, he's saying the same kind of destruction that came against Edom, that came against Egypt, that came against Jerusalem, that came against Babylon. It's going to come against Jerusalem now. So he's using that language to, to, to remind them of this 
physical destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what Matthew 24 is all about. So it's, to me, it's more about they're, they're already doing something, right? And he's letting them know, by the way, the fruit of this action that you have freely chosen is that you will be absolutely completely slaughtered. So who's going to slaughter them? God? Is God going to ride a pony out of the clouds and with a big sword and smash them? No. What's good? The Romans will. Now he uses language that sounds that way, but he's doing it in a way because he wants them to repent. He wants them to stop and to turn around and change and follow him and his direction. And that if they do that, they will live. But if they don't, they're going to basically, it's cause and effect. It's sowing and reaping. You are sowing something, and I'm telling you, in about 40 years from now, you are going to reap the absolute end and destruction of this city, this temple, the priesthood, the sacrifice. It's all over, game over. And so that language of, uh, again, we, we look at it in the sense of, well, this is the judgment of God. This is the wrath of God. Well, it's, uh, I think we use that terminology, but it's not God doing it. It's God warning. What God is doing is warning them. What God is doing is sending his son because he loves them and saying, stop, turn around, do something different. And if, because if you don't, you are going to incur the wrath of the Roman empire. And they did. So, so that's how I understand those yeah. kinds of, that, that kind of language, that it's not God bringing any kind of destruction. Do you think, but, would you understand that Jesus was saying, um, so if Jesus is quoting Isaiah or Daniel or Ezekiel there. Do you think that, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel are saying that God is the one who's the agent, uh, at least the ultimate agent for this judgment? Well, I, I think if we could somehow interview those guys um, who, who said those Old Testament prophecies, they, in their mind, yeah, probably God did send the Egyptians to attack and destroy them or the, Bab- the, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire to take them into captivity. Um, that's the language they use. I think they probably thought that is what's happening. But I think what Jesus is wanting them to do is see that um, he's been sent by the Father to rescue them, to save them from this fate, that he doesn't want them to to go in this direction. This isn't something God wants. Do you think that Jesus explicitly or implicitly uh, challenges that Old Testament assumption that God is, is the ultimate agent? Or does he simply quote their language and imply this seem to imply the same thing that they thought, which was that God was, was ultimately the agent of this, not the agent, the ultimately the source of the the judgment, even if these pagan kingdoms were the agent of it. Because I guess if you're saying, well, yeah, maybe Isaiah meant that, but that's not what Jesus means. It seems to me that if Jesus doesn't give us an explicit reason to think that he doesn't mean that by, by telling us that in some way, then that might be a place where, you're using not just a Jesus-centric hermeneutic, but a, you know, uh, Prince of Peace <laughs> Jesus-centric, you know, a certain element, a certain part of Jesus. And, and I'm not saying that to be, I guess I'm not, I'm not trying to be adversarial, but that, that's kind of what I wonder. I, I, well, basically, I'd like to hear you respond to that is basically, I guess, what sure. I'm getting at. Yeah. Well, I guess I think um, in the, specifically in the, the warning passages like Matthew 24, Matthew 25, um, where he's using that language, yeah, maybe maybe that's not where we see Jesus correcting um, those sort of old covenant ideas of what kind of God is God? What is God like? 
But I do think Jesus definitely gives us very different, very unique pictures, um, very brand new ideas to the, to the Jewish people uh, of, of, of a God who is infinitely merciful, right? The prodigal son is probably the best example. Um, you know, if, if in this parable, God is the father and, um, and, you know, human beings are the ones basically telling God, I wish you were dead. Go in and give me my inheritance. I'm going to go and blow it. I'm going to do every horrible, awful thing imaginable. Well, as he's telling that parable, I'm sure the Jewish audience is thinking, oh, get ready. Boy, here it comes. When that kid comes home, just wait. Oh, my gosh, he is going to get it, right? But you don't. Like, that's the big surprise. The father's reaction is only love. It's only forgiveness. It's only absolute mercy. And so I think what we see is Jesus in other places giving us uh, a specific picture of who the father is and what the father is like. And, and, you, and you see that as maybe controlling of the passages where he seems to be going along with the Old Testament. And, and, and maybe I'll ask you one more question too, which is when you sort of see like, the pro, you say the prodigal son appears to be like a brand new kind of vision of God. It doesn't seem that different than like Jonah, for example, or even some of these passages of judgment that you read in the prophets. But ultimately God is saying, there is going to be this time where you're going to deal with the consequences of your actions and you'll be in exile but I'm going to bring you back. There's hope, there's light at the end of this tunnel, and I'm going to be the one who's responsible, which is very much like, I mean, that's like, that runs in, in direct parallel to the prodigal son, right? The, the kid who runs away from home and ignores his dad, and then his dad brings him back. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So I guess as, as, I, as I read it, while I agree with you, you don't have any, um, you know, slaughter the Canaanite passages because the new covenant's a spiritual kingdom and, and the old covenant is about a physical kingdom. Um it seems to me that we, we do have a lot of these passages, you know, we have both sets of passages in both Testaments and even from the mouth of Jesus, you know, on the one hand, yeah, you're right. Prodigal son. That's, that's amazing and beautiful. But on the other hand, apart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So <laughs> there seems, as I read Jesus, there seems to be a little bit of both there. And I guess that's where I have trouble seeing uh, this sort of strong disconnect. The old Testament's this way, the new Testament's that way. I see both threads running through both Testaments. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, um, obviously you and I see those things from different, different angles, right? Cause I, I don't, I, I look at it and I see what I see is Jesus, um, presenting to us an idea of God, um, and often even of scripture that, that is different. I think, I think Jesus, um, in other words, I think more is going on than just the Old Testament with a cross on top. Like, I, I think Jesus actually comes and he fulfills the Old Covenant scriptures, uh, the, old, the Old Covenant, the law, all of that is fulfilled and abolished and gone. Jesus gives us this new covenant. Um, I think he gives us a new picture of what the Father is like. Um, he gives us, again, I, I think it's not the same picture. I don't, I don't think it's the same temperament, the same... Uh, voice, the same tone. Um, I think we, what I see in Jesus, embodied by Jesus, is much more a God who is merciful to a fault um, that I don't see this wrath in God as revealed in Jesus. Again, I, I know there are passages where it, it, it sounds that way. But again, I think if we take the full 
picture of what it is that Jesus is saying, and he says it from the beginning, of why he's saying it and what he's hoping to accomplish. You know, you know, he weeps over Jerusalem because they don't know the things that make for peace. Like, because he's trying to show them the things that make for peace. He's trying to give them this opportunity to turn and repent and go this other way. And he's, and he's brokenhearted that they're not doing it. They don't get it. They don't see it. And, and here's what I find fascinating. Um, God, when Jesus gives us this picture um, or I should flip it around. When Jesus tells us that we should love our enemies, he says it's because that's what God does. In other words, the, the, he, he bases our, uh, his command for us to love our enemies. He says, because if you do that, you're going to be like your father in heaven, because this is what God is. This is, this is the way God is. Um, which I think is a very, you know, I think that was a mind-blowing concept for the Jewish people. Like, whoa, God is like, he, he blesses the righteous and the unrighteous. He's, he loves the, the good and the bad, the Jew and the Gentile. Like those ideas, that, that was a radical concept. Um, and by the way, and I talk about this in the book as well, and I think you and I have already talked about this before. Even in that, when Jesus is, is saying, you know, the reason why you should love your enemies and bless them is because when you do that, you'll be doing what God does. Um, then, he, then he says, because, because God brings rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, even that is a contradiction of something Moses says. Because Moses says, God only brings rain on the righteous and he doesn't bring it on the unrighteous. And so Jesus, even as he's trying to teach us who God is, he's correcting Again, this idea of, no, Moses said God was this other way. I'm telling you, God is not like that. God is like this. He's a, he's a different way. He's a different God. And I mean, can I do one, one more thing? Because I just recently saw this, and I think this is significant. Sure. Hold on. Yeah, I got to flip over to it real quick. Um, it's in... I'll say, while you're looking... Because yeah. I'm not, I'm not wanting to push back too much. And, and, sure, sure, and, sure. But um, I, uh, after we, um, after I, so I was gonna say, I sent you the draft of um, my chapter where I, where I discussed your work, yeah. and I added a section on that, the sons of our father in heaven section, um, because I think you, you felt that I, I should have addressed that more. You thought that was more of a significant point in your book. Sure. And and I do have some responses to that, but I, I won't share them here. But if somebody wants to read them, they are in the book because I I, I thought that was an interesting perspective, and I and I do, uh, you know, try to tease out um, some of those issues and and, and give what I, I think is a, a decent response to that question. But I won't give it here. Right. <laughs> I found it. I found the part here. Right. This is what I think is so interesting because because um, once I once I figured this out, it was like oh, the, it makes this statement makes sense in a way it never made sense to me before. Okay, so it's in the passage, the love your enemies passage. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven because God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Again, we've already talked about that as being already challenging something that's that's said in the Old Testament by Moses. And then check this out. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And then he says, be holy 
even as your heavenly father is holy. What, what, how, why does that statement pop in at the end of this teaching about loving your enemy? And, and this correction of the idea of, no, God is not like this, God is like that. I think what Jesus is doing here is correcting, a, again, a misunderstanding of in what way is God holy? The Pharisees would have said, God is holy. God is, um, he can't be in the presence of sin. Um, he's too holy to look upon sin. And therefore, that's why he only brings rain uh, on, the, on the just and not on the unjust. That's why he, he loves uh, his people, but he hates the sinner. Um, so Jesus shows up and says, actually, let me tell you in what way God is holy. You want to know, you know what God's holiness is? God's holiness isn't that he's so holy he can't be in the presence of sin. No, because Jesus says, look, you know, he's always hanging out with sinners. He's, he's saying, I'm showing you what the Father is like. He loves everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous. The, the, the holy people like these, these Pharisees and the sinners like the lepers and the prostitutes and the drunks, he loves them too, okay? And so that's when, why Jesus corrects this misunderstanding and he ends it by saying, be holy the way God is holy. And it just told you the way God is holy. In what way is God holy? God, God's holiness is expressed in his love for the sinner and the righteous and the unrighteous. So I think, again, there's this radical shift of redefining who is God and what does it even mean to say that God is holy. It doesn't mean be perfect. Oh, now all of a sudden Jesus wants me to be sinless. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you want to be like your father in heaven, Here's how you do it. You love your enemy. You bless them. Why? Because that's what God is like. And that is the holiness of God we are to imitate. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you one more um, book-related question. Okay. And because um, it's getting a little bit late here, I'm sure you probably want to get to bed. Or get, well, actually, you're a little bit behind me, but you at least want to probably eat dinner. Yeah, I'm actually going to mind after this, so. Okay. Do, do you have Do you have time for one more question? Let's do it. Well, give me well, Give me one more last the one, and we'll we'll wrap it up. Okay. Uh, so I I I, I mentioned this earlier in the conversation. Um, I I sent you a the chapter of a manuscript that dealt specifically with your book. Um, is there anything um, in that manuscript that you think suggests I have really just misunderstood or misrepresented your work or views? Or at this point, would you say, well, we're just we're just disagreeing? <laughs> Well, I mean, Cody, I think, um, first of all, man, I love you. And I, I really appreciate your heart and your spirit. And even that you would even, you know, you send me the thing ahead in advance and let me respond and do an interview and talk to me, you know, and, and have a conversation. So I really appreciate that. Um, no, I mean, I, I guess there was, I don't think there was anything really, I mean, I sent you the things that I, that I felt like you left out or didn't mention. Um, and, and so I've already sent you that. Uh, I, I think it, it probably just boils down to, uh, you're probably understanding me, you're just not convinced. <laughs> um, and so for me, yeah, for me, it's this, it's this freeing truth. It's this amazing opportunity to say, oh, wow, I never noticed this before, right? That it's, that everything hinges on Jesus, not on a book, right? Um, 
like, you know, to me, even the whole thing about it in John about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then later the word now abides with us, right? Jesus and the father have made their home in us. Um, at no point in that sequence is the word written down. It never says in the beginning was the word and the word was written down into a book and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. No, the word is with God. It was God and it became flesh straight to becoming flesh. Dwells among us now dwells within us. There's nothing written down. doesn't mean you shouldn't write things down. I'm glad somebody did write some things down. Um, but our relationship isn't with, with the stuff that some guys wrote down. Our relationship is with the person that they wrote it about, which is Christ. Amen to that. Well, and, and I, I appreciate you being willing to do this. And I, I, I know that if somebody sent me a message and said, hey, I, uh, I'm, I'm really coming after you in this book and uh, why don't you take a look at it? I, I feel like I would at least be apprehensive about it. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I, I, I hope that, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear you, you, you think my heart's in the right place. I don't want to, uh, uh, say anything of you, uh, like, uh, <laughs> like, a um, was said of a, a Marcion by, um, by Tertullian when he said, um, uh, after listing all the things about Marcion's homeland of, of, of Pontus, uh, all these horrible things about it, he said, nothing in Pontus is so barbarous and sad as the fact that Marcion was born there. Wow. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think we can agree to disagree and I, and I can appreciate your heart and, and, you know, where you are on this and uh, we can disagree and you can think I'm wrong and I can think you're wrong, but we're, we're trying to both follow Christ as best we can. And uh, at some point, both of us are going to have to come to terms with what we got wrong. Um, sure. Look, uh, look, I say this all the time. Um, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm going to quote him again. I think, I, gosh, I do it all the time. Um, my friend Josh Lawson says, you know, the, the funny thing about my worldview is uh, no matter how many times it changes, I'm always right. And, uh, and then my paraphrase of that is I was wrong before. I'm probably wrong about some things now and I will be wrong again. So uh, I'm less concerned about whether I'm right or I'm wrong. I just hope that I'm gracious and Christ-like and patient uh, with people you know, along the way. So now um, for those who have appreciated what you said here and want to know a little bit more about you, first of all, where, where, what website or, or blog would they go to? And second of all, is there anything that you've got coming out pretty soon that they should check out? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I have a blog, uh, it's just my name, keithgiles.com. That's over on Patheos. Um, so I blog a couple of times a week over there. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and um, you can follow me there. I do this, podcast called the heretic happy hour like you mentioned and that's on anywhere anywhere fine podcasts are sold um i have several books i have four books in the jesus un series that are on amazon and um uh the thing i want to talk about i'll just mention is that um, i've been doing this 90-day course uh called square one and it's designed to help people who are deconstructing their faith kind of questioning their faith and um want help going through the deconstruction process. And especially what we focus on really is um, helping people find a foundation to reconstruct their faith. Because I've, I feel like it's something, well, I've seen it, it's been, we've gone through two rounds so far and uh, it's been amazing. And people have really been helped by it. 
So if anyone needs help with that, that's called square one. You can find out information about that at BK2SQ1, stands for back to square one, BK2SQ1.com. Um, and the next session will start around uh, first part of April. So we're taking about, we're taking about 15, 12 to 15 people each time through the process. And uh, it's like, takes about 90 days. Right. Well, and I'm, I'm, I think I said to you before you started this, uh, I, I'm glad that, that there are people that you're speaking with and helping out who are uh, getting, getting past deconstruction <laughs> and are working on reconstruction. Because uh, unfortunately, a lot of people, when they start working through elements of their faith, um, they just fall away. And so um, yeah. e even if uh, I suspect a lot of them are going to end up in places that I, I wouldn't, I'm glad that they're still with us. Yeah, I mean, again, my my concern, I, I, I agree with you on the sense that um, my concern is that people deconstruct out of the faith. And um, I think that's unnecessary. I think there's plenty of things that are worth questioning and even getting, you know, abandoning uh, in our in our status quo of our Christian Christianity. But Jesus isn't one of them. Uh, I feel like uh, you can question a lot of things, but you should you. you there's really good reasons for you to continue to. Uh, maintain your connection with Christ. And so my hope is to help people find that foundation and continue on. And, and again, build uh, reconstruction is really about moving into a much healthier, happier place of being connected with God um, in, in ways that bring you life. Um, and as you're deconstructing out of some things that maybe are about fear and control and manipulation. Um, yeah. So that's been that's been a blast. I've been really blessed to be able to help some people do that. And and if anyone needs any help with that, and I am offering some sponsored seats as well. So because it does cost something because it's 90 days and you know there's a lot involved with it. It's a course. Um, but if anybody really says, man, I really want to do this, but I can't afford it right now. Uh, let me know because I'm going to offer probably about four or five seats uh, that'll be sponsored. Thank you so much, Keith. I appreciate you taking time. I think at this point, you, you might be the guest I've had on the most. And I think the, the, the first time you were on, we were in, I think, about 99% agreement on everything we talked about. And the second time, a little less so. But that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. So I, I'm glad to have somebody on who I can agree with and disagree with. And uh, we can both feel good about the conversation after it's done. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about movies sometime, too. That's, that's I, really what we I'd love to. I think one of the last times we, we talked, you, you, you mentioned uh, wanting to talk about the movie Wonder Woman. So maybe that will be one we'll have to put on the oh, list. Yeah. Unless there's something else that's occurred to you that pops oh, out. There's lots more to talk about. <laughs> Wonder Woman, yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Keith. Yeah. Bless me. Take care.